Welcome to Yet Even Now on the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. The following teachings through the book of Joel came out of preparation for the 2020 Yet Even Now conference, which was canceled due to the novel coronavirus. We are overjoyed to be able to share these teachings prepared for this conference recorded in the fall of 2020. Study along with us through the book of Joel using the Yet Even Now Companion Guide found at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com. We pray these teachings will bless you as you hear from the Lord through the prophet Joel. Dayton Women in the Word exists to help women read their Bibles. If you have been blessed by our ministry and free resources, would you please consider giving a donation at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash donate. Welcome, my name is Jillian Vincent, and I will be guiding us through the context of Joel in this first recording today. And just to introduce myself for a minute, I have been serving with Dayton Women in the Word in various roles for the past six years now as content director as well as a teaching team lead for our summer studies. I am a wife and a mom. I'm a boy mom. I have three boys, five and under. I'm also a Safe Families host mama. Look up the organization. It's amazing in keeping families in Dayton together um, in a way that really honors the Lord and his heart for biblical hospitality. And I get the opportunity to be a spiritual mama through uh, Dayton Women in the Word. And uh, this is just one of the ways that God has given me to do that, is to open the Word of God with you all and with the women He brings into my life. So uh, let's go ahead and open the Word of God together. Go ahead and open to the book of Joel. And while you're doing that, I just want to tell you a little story about my son, Matthias. When he was really little, he came to me one day so excited. And he said, Mom, you have to see this wizard. I said, wizard? What do you mean wizard? I didn't even know that he knew what that word meant. He was so small, but he was insistent. He said, mom, come here. You have to see this wizard. And he pulled my hand until I came in and he showed me a picture from the book he was reading. And it was full of lizards. (laughs) Lizards. Okay. I had to come and see the lizards. I didn't understand what he was trying to tell me. I uh, needed him to guide me to the book to show me what he really meant. 
I wasn't really hearing him. I wasn't really understanding, and I had to discover it myself. Sometimes we don't hear because we don't understand. Sometimes we don't hear because we aren't paying attention. And let's be real, sometimes we don't hear because we don't want to hear it. The good news is that God is even more insistent on getting our attention and helping us understand than Matthias was that I understand him about the lizards. (laughs) And it's a good thing because God's message is way more important. We're going to see through Joel how God captures the attention of his children and how he speaks to his children. Wait, what? God speaks to us? Yes, I think you know that already because you're here and you're listening. But if you're doubting, yes, miraculously, the God of the universe speaks to us. In the book of Joel, he spoke through a prophet. Now he speaks through his word and through the Holy Spirit. And our job is to listen. Which brings me to our main point for this recording, this session. And that is, listen to God with a heart posture that is open to true understanding and true change. Humble yourself in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let me repeat that. Listen to God with a heart posture that is open to true understanding and true change. Humble yourself in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let me say a quick prayer over our time together. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And open our eyes to the wondrous things in your word. Humble us, God, in the presence of your Holy Spirit, because we want to be changed in your presence. Amen. So in this talk, I'm going to cover uh, three things. I'm going to go through just the first three verses with you of the book of Joel in the first chapter. We are going to go one by one through the five context questions of the book of Joel. And then we are going to talk briefly about the themes that we'll be unpacking in this book. So first, hopefully you found the book of Joel, and we are going to uh, read through the first three verses together. And let me just encourage you to grab a pack of post-it notes. Feel free to pause this and go, go grab them or any piece of paper or paper clip or anything to mark where you are are at in this study because although we are focusing on Joel, God will bring us to many different places over the course of this study. And I think it's really good for us to get a visual of how all the Bible fits together. So grab your post-it notes, put one in Joel, and that's where we will get started. And we want to be uh, moving towards being as at home in the Word as possible and getting more and more comfortable with it, Um, almost as if it's your own skin. We want it to be so familiar to us. So go ahead and mark every place that you find yourself over the course of, of this study. Joel is a wee tiny book 
in the Old Testament. It is after Hosea and it is before Amos. Um, it's in the prophet section of the Bible. The Bible is not arranged chronologically, but rather categorically. And this category that Joel fits into is prophet. There are 16 prophetic books in the Bible. There are five major and 11 minor. Joel is a minor prophet, not because it has minor material, uh, but just because it is shorter. That is how it is categorized. Okay, before we hear any more from me, let's hear from the Lord. Let's read the first three verses of Joel. I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, an invasion of locusts. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your father? Fathers, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for it. These three verses give us much context for this book, believe it or not. We will address both the author and the audience in a moment, but for now, I just want to zero in on verse two. Read it again with me. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Let's talk about the two imperatives we find there. There's a call to hear and to give ear. This is relevant not only for the beginning of this book, the beginning of this study, but for the beginning of every time you set out to hear a word from the Lord your God. The word to hear in Hebrew is Shema. What does this mean? It's not just the act of your ears working. Joel is not telling the inhabitants of the land to make sure vibrations are accurately hitting his eardrum and setting messages to his brain. No, Joel is not concerned with the mechanics and inner workings of the people's ears. This reminds me of the movie Sister Act, where Whoopi Goldberg is trying to get the attention of the pianist. So she stomps the floor and says, Alma, check your battery, and is trying to get her to turn on her hearing aid. Whoopi Goldberg is getting her attention with the stomping because she wants her to do something. She wants her to play the piano. Joel here is saying for them not just to get their ears to work, but for them to obey for them to yield to and receive this message from the Lord and to do something about it. He's calling them not just to be attentive, but to tend, to open themselves up for change in word and in deed. Joel is emphasizing this message, and we know that because he repeats his instruction to the inhabitants. In the Hebrew language, there There are no exclamation points, bold or italics, when they want to emphasize something. They repeat it. 
So he is saying here, and then he says again, give ear. This is important. He wants them to pay attention and to put what his message is into practice in their lives. I want to stop here and ask you, when was the last time you really felt heard? When you knew someone got the message you were trying to convey? Anyone who is any type of leader really knows this. Moms know this. Teachers know this. Bosses know this. When we say, do you hear me? We actually expect something from the other. We expect an acknowledgement of understanding. My background is in counseling, and a beautiful aspect of this field is that we are trained to repeat back what the person has just said, clarifying, rephrasing, checking, this is what I'm hearing. Is this what you are really saying? And maybe the more important question is, when was the last time you really felt heard from, when was the last time you really heard from God? The problem is never that he has not spoken because he's given us a whole book that speaks to our soul. The problem might be with how well we are listening. My husband is an engineer and in his workplace, they actually had a training for them on active listening. So this is not just a skill that is good for one field uh, or another. It's good for all fields, even with professionals that mainly work with numbers and computers. As an engineer, my husband needs to know how to listen um, and how to, um, and how to explain how he's understood from the other person. And in this very secular workplace, they shared a Bible verse in an active listening training. James 1.19 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This verse to me, by the way, feels like a one-sentence summary of the entire book of Proverbs. James is really on to something here, and it is valuable for all of us in the human race. And amazingly, my husband's workplace gave him some active listening tips that are immensely practical when we listen to God as well. So I want to share some of those with you. We need to take a humble posture. We don't want to be listening just to formulate our response. We want to be listening to really understand and listening to be changed. We must humble ourselves and listen, not just uh, not just for our own to be heard back, but to be changed in his presence. So not just listening to formulate a response, but to be changed. The second thing after humble posture is we need to pay attention. We need to eliminate our distractions. We need to turn off our phones. This is so hard for us these days. And we need to turn tune in to what the other person is saying. We need to look at the person. So this is often when we pray why we close our hands or why we teach our kids to fold or close our eyes and we teach our kids to fold their hands um, because we want to be really focusing our whole being on listening to the Lord. We want to take notes. His workplace was basically telling him to annotate one of the skills that we teach women 
in their Bible studies. And then we want to check with the other if our notes are correct. So this is often why in Bible studies we compare notes or we discuss what we're learning because we all have that same Holy Spirit inside of us and we can confirm, you know, is he saying this to another person? Is he saying this um, across with all these commentaries we might read at the ends of our study? So we take a humble posture, we pay attention, we take notes, and we ask questions. If you're really listening, then your questions will reflect that you're really trying to understand the message and then it will be received well. These tips are all true for us when we listen to God by opening his word and through prayer. Listen to be changed, take notes, ask questions. And I would add this, and it is important for Bible study. Pray. We must ask God to keep revealing himself to us. So as we start this study, we want to take an open posture We want to pray for a moldable heart, and we want to pray for ears that don't just have working parts, but ears that will really hear the word of God and change us. So again, the main point for today is that we want to listen to God with a heart posture that is open to true understanding and true change. We want to humble ourselves in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So with that, let's move on to our five main context questions. Those are who wrote it? To whom was it written? When was it written? In what style was it written? And why was it written? Let's start with the first one. Who wrote it? The prophet Joel We don't know much else about Joel, but what is written in this book. We do know the meaning of his name, that is Yahweh is God, and you might hear more about that later in this study. But for now, all I want you to understand is that Yahweh is a very personal name for the Lord. In his book, God Has a Name, John Mark Comer listens likens this name to him calling his wife Tammy. He doesn't call her wife, which is more of a title or a general name or a category. He calls her by her name. And God's name is personal. It's Yahweh. So when we say Yahweh is God, is the name, is what Joel means, we are calling attention to the personal nature of God. There is an intimacy between God and his people. When you call God Yahweh, it means I know him and he knows me. We're on a first name basis. There is intimacy in that relationship. So that's what we know about Joel. Let's talk about prophets in general. What is a prophet? Well, we're going to talk about what a prophet is not before what we talk about what a prophet is. There are three things that a prophet is not, and I put P's for all of them so it would be easy to remember. So a prophet is not a psychic, a politician, or a priest. A prophet is not a psychic. They cannot see the future in general. They're given a specific message from the Lord for a specific people at a specific time. 
A prophet is also not a politician. A prophet doesn't have a personal agenda they are trying to make happen. They have the Lord's agenda. And a prophet is a is not a priest. So not a psychic, not a politician, not a priest. A priest was different uh, than the appointment of prophet. Priests had a specific job in the Old Testament to fulfill a significant role in temple life and worship and in the atonement of the sins of the people. So that's what a prophet is not. Not a psychic, not a politician, not a priest. What is a prophet then? Well, the Hebrew word for uh, prophet is navi, meaning to announce. It's from a root literally meaning to bubble forth as from a fountain. So it's it's as if prophets have this message and it is from the Lord and it is bubbling out of them. They were sent by God to be a spokesperson for God. In Hebrews 1.1, put a post-it note there, God says, long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God spoke to his people through through the prophets. In 2 Peter 1.21, it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Just interesting to point out the Holy Spirit was with people in the Old Testament, and we will hear more about the Holy Spirit uh, this study. But God gave the prophets a message through the Holy Spirit. It wasn't from them themselves. It was directly from God. So a prophet also dealt in specifics. They had a specific message for a specific people. Those people were often kings or God's people in particular, but prophets could also be for other people groups as well. And there are standards for prophets that God set forth in Deuteronomy. So keep a finger in Joel. And move on over to Deuteronomy 13. And the first five verses of Deuteronomy 13 are standards for for prophets. So let's go ahead and read that together. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So from those five verses, we get some standards for prophets. 
One, they point to the one true God. True prophets point to Yahweh. Interesting that Joel's name means Yahweh is God because even his name is meeting this standard. Yahweh is God. Two, the second standard for prophet is they encourage the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And three, they encourage walking in the way of the Lord, fearing him, obeying him, serving him, and holding fast to him. And if they do not do these three things, they are encouraging rebellion, and that punishment is death. So it was a sober calling to be a prophet. But by the standards in Deuteronomy, it should be pretty clear whether the prophet is a true prophet from the one true God or not. And are they doing those things or not? If, if they are, then the people should very much listen to them, should pay attention, should give ear and hear with the intention for true transformation. Prophets addressed both present and future issues, but they also referenced to the past. Joel does this as he addresses both the present, both a present day of the Lord and a future day of the Lord, and this will be covered in, in several sessions. But he also quotes and references from multiple other prophets, at least 12, which meant he had read or listened to them. Some of these works he quoted multiple times. For example, Ezekiel alone he quoted 23 times. And sometimes it's hard to know who quoted who, but for him to have that many references from that many other biblical texts suggests he is the one doing the quoting. And the prophets from the Old Testament still serve people today. They serve us today. In other words, we still learn from their messages recorded in the Bible, which is what we are dedicated to dedicating this study to doing. So that's the first question, who wrote it? The second context question is, to whom was it written? Let's go back to Joel and open up to chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. It says, oh, I'm sorry, chapter 1, yes, verse 1, verse 2 and 3. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So did this answer your question, to whom was it written? It was written to the elders and inhabitants of the land, as it says in verse 2. That's right. But as we read on in Joel, we see him specifically address priests. He gives instructions to the priests later on in the book. And he names uh, these elders and priests specifically because they were influential. They were the leaders in their community and in their own households and families. So this message would travel from those leaders, from these people of influence, down to the family circles. But this book was also to the inhabitants of the land. So this message was for everyone, for men, women, and children, all who were in this land. God's people had been split at one point into to two kingdoms. So you might be wondering, what land is he addressing? 
Well, most likely this was addressed to the southern kingdom of Judah, specifically because um, Joel references Jerusalem and Judah many times. But also Joel mentions the generations after this one and so on and so forth so that we are actually included in this audience of generations past. So who was it written to? The leaders, the people, us. Third question, when was it written? This question has to do with the dating of the book, but also to the overall story of the Bible, what we call the meta narrative. The dating of this book is debated. Uh, the range is huge from the 9th to the 5th centuries BC. But the Bible Project videos and the ESV Study Bible suggest that it's most likely after the return from exile. But not everybody agrees with them. But these are what these two sources believe, that this book is dated around or after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when they returned back from the promised land. It seems they have no king, or at least one is not mentioned, and the exile is treated as a past event. And the conquest of Jerusalem is also mentioned. So those are some cues of why they date it when they do. That might not mean much to you if you aren't familiar with the big picture story or the meta narrative that the Bible tells. So here's a little summary to ground you, but you also have a timeline included in your conference guide if you need a visual. I am a visual learner, so that those things are very helpful to me. Um, the meta narrative we break down into four major movements, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. It says new creation on your timeline, but some call it restoration, consummation, or new creation. It's called different things in Christian circles. Creation is in the very beginning. God created this perfect world and included people in that plan. But sin entered the world. Adam and Eve were the first people who sinned by disobeying God's command to not eat of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from then on, sin plagued our world and our hearts, and we needed a way to be with God again. So God made a plan to send his son Jesus to be the rescuer. So a whole bunch of stuff happens after creation and the fall of sin before Jesus comes again to redeem the world in that third movement, redemption. So here are some highlights just to jog your memory. There was the great flood, Noah's Ark, God giving Abraham a promise that his descendants would be God's people and a great nation. Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt, the great exodus led by Moses out of Egypt after the Israelites were enslaved there, wandering in the desert, waiting to get into the promised land, much conquering led by Joshua to take hold of the promised land, then many judges, many kings, and many prophets. There was an exile from the promised land and then a return from the nations holding them captive. Perhaps 
you know some of these stories from Sunday school or you've been studying the Old Testament and have a better grasp of it all. Maybe this is all new to you. There are a lot of facts and details, but there remains a pattern to the whole story. God has a plan to save the world. In the meantime, he creates ways for his people to be with him. They are unfaithful to him. They sin. Sin has consequences. They continue to be sought after by the Lord despite it all again and again and again until the awaited Messiah comes. In Joel, this cycle has happened so many times. Sin and consequence, God's pursuit and covenant with a sinful people, and a plan for their redemption. When we meet Joel, it's likely the people have re-entered the land after being exiled to Assyria and Babylon. And God is showing them grace yet again by bringing them back into the land after exile. So that was when it was written. Let's move on to in what style was it written. If this was a Netflix genre, it would be somewhere between horror film and net and freaky nature documentary. Um, the two biblical genres we have here are two more P's, poetry and prophecy. The first one we're going to talk about is poetry. This is important to understand because poetry is not so much about information as it is experience. So Joel wants us to experience what God has uh, for us to hear. And it makes sense because if you read something in a book, let's talk maybe about cooking, for example, you may remember a recipe, but if you really chop and smell the onion, if you feel the heat of the stove and hear the sizzle of the meat searing, you will really have kinesthetically learned something that only experience can do. And Joel does that a couple different ways in this uh, poetic form through the choice of words is the first one. Uh, And a lot of these word choices will be lost on us because we're reading it in English and it was written in Hebrew. So in the Hebrew, they might rhyme, they might alliterate, or they might starkly contrast. And commentaries can often help point this out to you if you're not fluent in Hebrew, as I am not. But what, but you can imagine uh, what you learned in, in uh, English class about English poetry, the same sorts of things apply here as uh, the Hebrew writer writes Hebrew poetry. There's vivid description, particularly of the nature and locus in the book. And that could really be put in a category of its own nature stories or horror film script because he appeals to the senses here. He talks about putting on the sackcloth. Uh, He gives us a vivid description of the utter utter devastation of the land and the people in it. We can really feel the heat or the fire that has burned the trees. We can really see and experience what is going on um, and what the people who would have originally heard this book would be experiencing. There's apostrophe, which is addressing entities that are not actually there. There is similes uh, in the book. There, there are 12 different times that the word like is used um, to compare something. And there's metaphor, 
There's phrases like a nation of locusts or ground and land taking action. There's animals uh, talking about uh, Yahweh roaring as if he were a lion. And there's uh, a metaphor with plants. There's a talk of joy withering as a plant would wither. So those are all different aspects to this poetic form that Joel is writing in. But there's also another form, and that's prophecy. So no big surprise there. And there are two types of oracles Joel shares in this prophetic voice. And oracles would be usually be the type of information given in prophecy that would warn of something or inform people about the present or, or the future. There's two types of oracles really highlighted in Joel, and that's an oracle of judgment and an oracle of salvation. The oracle of judgment is found in in pictures of locusts demonstrating God's wrath, matching much of what the plague of locusts did against the Egyptians when Pharaoh would not let God's people free, except this time it is God's own people experiencing this plague. The question comes, did this actually happen? Some say no, some say it's just a metaphor, but the wide variety of commentaries we read agreed that Joel is describing an actual locust plague and recording it so that his readers will experience it too. His message is connecting the locust plague to the judgment that God is sending. The second type of oracle is an oracle of salvation, and I really like how the ESV study Bible summed up this type of oracle for the book of Joel. God called his ancient people in love and mercy. He preserved them to be the vehicle through which he poured out his spirit on all kinds of people, and he will preserve them against all who seek to destroy them. In all of his care for them, he aims for torn hearts and not just torn garments from his people, that they might love him with their whole hearts. So that is what style it's written in poetry and in prophecy. And the last question is, why was it written? It was written to call God's people to lament sin and to genuine change. So the call to lament sin Let's talk about what sin are we talking about here? Well, we don't know. Actually, the only specific sin mentioned in Joel is drunkenness, but it was kind of brief um, and doesn't seem to fit maybe the whole picture. So we don't really know. But the call for national prayer and fasting signified it was an extraordinary event. So this locust plague coming on must have caused them to seriously consider their actions and would try to serve to convict them of those actions. And there's a hint in the name of the prophet himself, I believe, because remember, Joel means Yahweh is God. And if we look back on the pattern of spiritual adultery through the Old Testament, it wouldn't be a stretch to think that we are seeing the aftermath of Israel's unfaithfulness to God once again. So this could be a cause this prophet had to speak this message as well. And some other common infractions the Israelites were called out on by prophets were mistreating the poor and the lower class of society or making military factions with other nations. So those are all possibilities as well. 
But there's also a call to genuine change, to repent. And to repent is to make a move from one direction to the other. So it's not just lip service, but actually making a gesture towards the right direction to give actual evidence that something has changed in the trajectory of your life. In Joel 2, verse 13, it says, Rend your hearts and not your garments. God is always caring more about what is going on in the inside of us than what's happening on the outside of us. We know that our actions come from the overflow of what's in our hearts. So this change is about our hearts. It has to start from the inside out. And then and only then will it be a genuine change. So let's just go back to our main point today again. Listen to God with a heart posture that is open to true understanding and true change. Humble yourself in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And for the rest of our time today, I'm just going to briefly walk us through some themes we're going to see throughout the book. And each one of the teachers will dive deeper into these themes as they appear in their portion of the text. First, we're going to see a theme of the day of the Lord, and with that, God's justice. Joel uses the phrase, the day of the Lord, five times, and eight prophets total use this phrase in the Old Testament. But this is not just an Old Testament thing. It was their future reality, but it is also our future reality. I was actually just reading about this in uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. Jesus is returning, and the world will be justly judged when he does. But if we are in Christ, we need not fear. And in fact, we can look forward to that day when God will make all things right again. Another theme is of lament and repentance. Here's a quote from the NIV application commentary. The highlighted element of Joel's lament is the loss of opportunity to offer to God the sacrifices due him. While the loss of food is significant for any nation, the loss of sacrifice is even more severe. Not only is physical life endangered, but so is a continuing covenant relationship between Israel and her God. Ladies, The worst thing that could ever happen to us is a severed relationship with God. This is absolutely devastating. As such, Joel calls the people to actively lament with sackcloth, fasting, and wailing. He calls everyone to do it too, even those in seasons of their lives that would seem really opposite to the type of lamenting he's calling for, like people who just got married, newlyweds, or people who just had brand new babies. Our relationship with God is our highest priority, and so when we mess it up, it's serious and calls for total brokenness. Another theme we'll see is mercy and restoration. God has mercy, which is not giving the people what they truly deserve. And he accepts the people's genuine repentance. He promises to restore to the people what was lost, both in the land and in their relationship with him. And lastly, a theme we see is the promise of the Lord's presence, an outpouring of the Lord's spirit. Joel gives us much hope about the Lord's presence with us. One famous passage you'll read in Joel is chapter 2, 
verse 28 through 32. And this passage about the Holy Spirit is repeated in Acts 2, 17 through 21. It directly qu- is directly quoted by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. And this prophecy's fulfillment and promise about the Holy Spirit is true for us t- today. After Christ ascended to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit and said it was actually better that we have the Spirit with us than if Jesus would have stayed. The Holy Spirit is helping us even today. He's with us in this room right now with you, with me right here, right now. Praise God. We are not alone and he is helping us. So those are the themes we will encounter in Joel. One more time, let's repeat our main theme, our main point of today. We want to listen to God with a heart posture that's open to true understanding and true change. Humble yourself in the presence of the Holy Spirit. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for wanting to talk to us through it. Give us ears to listen and hearts open to true understanding and true change. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to fill the hearts of those listening and to lead our study. We ask for you to create this posture in us and humble us. We ask that you would meet us here and that you would remove any pride that would keep us from hearing from you. We ask that you would help us to be quick to listen and slow to speak and give us an eagerness to hear from you and only you. Amen. There are a few discussion questions you will find regarding this portion of scripture and this talk through the context of Joel in your companion guide. Here they are. When was the last time you really felt heard? And what evidence did someone give you that they really heard you? When was the last time you really heard God? What active listening skills is God calling you to employ as you listen to him through this study and beyond? And three, while you are reading God's word, ask the Holy Spirit to humble you. Ask him to help you have a heart posture of wanting to truly understand and genuinely change. As you study, listen to him and write what you hear from him as you listen. You can start now. What have you heard from God in the first three verses of Joel? May God bless you and keep you and shine his face upon you and give you peace. Bye, ladies. Bye.